each person, as I had said, is an individual. And with that, each person brings a complexity with them. And so is what we would do is assist to identify if abuse, neglect, or misappropriation is occurring, identify it. It is up to the facility to take action on that. But our goal for the federal government is actually to have the facilities do what they can to protect those residents from having it happen in the first place. Welcome to the podcast, Pathways to Safety, Bridges from Adult Protective Services to Community-Based Services for Adults Experiencing Abuse, Neglect, and Exploitation. We come to you with the goal of introducing community partners in Montana who work together to assist victims and survivors of adults experiencing abuse, neglect, and exploitation. My name is Zachary Haas, and I'm your host today to meet one of these community partners in Montana. Before we start this episode, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is supported by the Administration for Community Living, United States Department of Health and Human Services, through a 2021 Elder Justice Innovations Grant, with Montana Adult Protective Services being our primary community partner. Grantees carrying out projects under government sponsorship are encouraged to express freely their findings and conclusions. Nonetheless, our findings, conclusions, points of view, or opinions do not necessarily represent the official policy of the federal government. Now let's join our guest in conversation. Today I'm speaking with Todd Boucher and Tina Smith from the Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services, Office of the Inspector General, Certification Bureau. Thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with me today and share a little bit about what your organization does. To start, could you please tell me who you are, including your professional position and your role with your agency? Okay, this is Todd. I've been with the Bureau for approximately six years now as the Bureau Chief, and prior to that I was here eight years as a supervisor within the division, and I serve as the Bureau Chief and it's very similar in many states that they have an executive officer at our level that serve to represent the public of our state and to include any kind of certified provider that we cover as far as oversight and balance. We have 28 staff under me, which includes three supervisors, two certification specialists, and 22 field surveyors. So we cover the entire state, which is the fourth largest state in the nation. And that is one of our biggest challenges, just to travel at times with our weather. Good morning, I'm Tina Smith, and I am the long-term care surveyor supervisor. And basically is what I do is I conduct quality assurance reviews on all of the reports and the surveys that the surveyors do when they're out in the field specifically. I also, as Todd does, work for the state of Montana, DPHHS, Office of Inspector General, and I personally supervise eight surveyors. And then I have been in long-term care for probably, I'd say, 30 years at least. I've been with the Certification Bureau for 10. I started as a surveyor. Now I'm a supervisor, but Prior to that, I worked in the private industry and I started my career in long-term care as a CNA when I was back in my early 20s. And prior to leaving, I ended up working at a large facility as an administrator. With the Bureau, I bring to that different level of experience from multiple different positions that I worked within the facility. In talking about the organization, you've talked a little bit about what you do, but could you go into that a little bit further as far as what the agency does and who you serve? Sure, I'll start and let Tina 
add to it. We conduct field surveys for complaints in what we call annual surveys to ensure compliance with the federal regulations associated with the receipt of reimbursement for services of those qualified for Medicaid and Medicare. So we send our field workers out to evaluate each facility that's been approved or certified in this case, and they evaluate whether they're meeting the minimum requirements of what the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services have put in place to demonstrate you know, good quality care for those residents. So our staff, they do ensure compliance with those minimum standards of care guaranteed to cover those who are covered under Medicaid and Medicare services. So it's really a regulatory oversight process that we do and we try to evaluate that care and whether it's adequate you know, to make sure that those folks are safe and they also have their health support systems in place to make sure they're taken well care of. So, And so these residents, in some sense, I would say you serve the residents, although there's different hats there. The residents that you serve that are in the long-term care facilities, are they just older adults or does it differ? It's actually quite different than what it used to be when I first started in the industry. I would say 95% of the residents that we had were over the age of 70, and a lot of them were mostly in their 80s. And we had a clientele that was very specific. A lot of farmers, things like that, husbands and wives would come in as couples and stay in the facility. And as the years went on, the population got younger, and we started to experience changes with residents that were coming in that were in their 60s and then their 50s and now we're experiencing residents that are in their 40s and their 30s and we have residents that have been in car accidents that are now quadriplegics or we have residents who have alcohol dementia and they are no longer able to live independently on their own therefore requiring long-term care we have a lot of residents who are multiple ages that have no resources as far as family or advocacies for them, and they really have no place else to go. So they end up in long-term care because they can't take care of themselves. So the diversity has changed a lot over the years. And right now the industry, it started when I first came into long-term care, but really about midway through, they started to really push the individualization of resident care with the Eden alternative and things like that, you know, bringing the home environment into long-term care. And now it is definitely more individually pushed. And basically is what we do is we look at those residents as an individual when we go into the facility. And our goal is to identify their needs and identify those needs that are not being met based on the federal requirements. And then we end up citing deficient practices off of those things that we find are deficient. So one of the main focuses of our research and our interest is on those older independent adults who experience abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Under what circumstances does your agency interact or serve those individuals? And maybe what services does your agency provide them? It comes in different capacities, actually. When we look at abuse, neglect, and misappropriation, 
we look at it in different categories. So it's not all together. So when we look at abuse, we're looking specifically at verbal, mental, physical, psychosocial. And when we're looking at neglect, we're looking at specifically the neglect of care that that person is receiving. And then misappropriation could be misappropriation of drugs or misappropriation of their money, misappropriation of their property. And each person, as I had said, is an individual. And with that, each person brings a complexity with them. And so is what we would do is assist to identify if abuse, neglect, or misappropriation is occurring, identify it. It is up to the facility to take action on that. But our goal for the federal government is actually to have the facilities do what they can to protect those residents from having it happen in the first place. So if they have their systems in place for protecting the resident and putting interventions in place for safety and making sure the staff are educated and making sure the staff are monitored and that the residents are monitored. Those are all really important facets to not only the work that we do, but specifically the work that facilities do too. So you work a lot directly with facilities. Do you also work with adult protective services in those instances? For example, do you get referrals from APS or do you ever have to refer residents to APS? We do. When I was working in the facility, I did work with APS more and we were quite active with them because if we had any type of an allegation, we would automatically report it to Adult Protective Services. At the time, we also had a lot of the Adult Protective Service staff members were actually the guardians of residents that were in our facility. And they would come to our care plan meetings and they would have regular meetings with us just about how things were going for those residents. But now working on the state side or the federal side, we have experienced a little bit of a difference there that the focus is, I think, different, but yet similar from what we do to what they do. And so we do do referrals. And if we have concerns based on a survey and specifically if it involves an entity that's outside of the facility, but we also refer if we have concerns with somebody inside the facility, such as a staff member or family member abusing or potentially stealing property, we will make referrals to Adult Protective Services. We do receive referrals from them on occasion. And then when a facility reports abuse, neglect, or misappropriation, they are required to report through a system that that report not only goes to us, but it also goes to APS. Are there other agencies or organizations besides APS that you tend to collaborate with on those cases? On those cases specifically, yes. Frequently, the ombudsman. The ombudsman is actually very involved in a lot of the situations that we use or handle. And then we also have Medicaid fraud will become involved specifically if we have misappropriation of property or misappropriation of drugs and the licensing bureau. So if we have concerns with a licensed staff member, whether it be a physician or a nurse, anything like that, we are required to do reporting of that to the professional licensing board. And then if we have concerns with any other entities, we would attempt to work with whatever agency that specifically is. But the Ombudsman, APS, and Medicaid fraud are the primary ones that we work with. 
Any successful stories to share? Yeah, I actually have a really good one. So when I was working in the facility, we had a resident who had came into the facility and she had a hip fracture and she was found in her home. She didn't have anybody taking care of her and she was completely blind. And APS was actually involved and they are the ones who brought her to our facility and had her admitted and they had to obtain a temporary guardianship to ensure she was safe. And through her time at the facility, which ended up being several years, it was found out that she actually had an individual who had come into her life and this individual was going to help take care of her. It was a young male. And it turns out that that young male ended up stealing all of her money and had taken her property and sold a lot of her property. And because she had no eyesight, she was literally blind. She had no idea that her vehicles were missing and her lawnmower was missing and things like that. And unfortunately is what that did, we had to work with Medicaid on this a lot, is that he took all of that money and in turn that made her ineligible for Medicaid coverage when she was in a facility. That put her at risk of being discharged from a long-term care facility if you can't pay for your stay. So it was what we had to do is work with APS and work with Medicaid. And she probably did not have a pay source for almost a year and a half until finally we figured out a way to get her on Medicaid. And APS did end up pressing charges with that individual who had an outcome from that for the misappropriation of property. So that was a success story on one side where we were very successful for her to ensure her safety. But then on the other side, when you're looking at it from a surveyor perspective, we were in a facility doing a survey and we had a resident who had multiple falls. I believe it was 13 falls within a six month period. And is what we found is they really had not looked at that resident as an individual. She had injuries to her hip. She had injuries to her head. She had multiple sets of stitches. She had bruising. She had hurt her knee, hurt her elbow. Injuries just literally everywhere. And is what they never figured out for this resident is that they needed to use a root cause analysis process to figure out what they were missing for her and the prevention of her falls. It ended up being cited as a neglect situation for that facility. And it was a significant deficiency and a significantly monetary penalty, I guess you would say for them because of the lack of the identification. And is what we did is we assisted them with the identification of it. We showed them how medications were involved. She had over 20 medication changes within that six month time period, including her antipsychotics, her anticonvulsants, her Parkinson's medication. All of those things combined together are root causes of those potential falls. And they really just did not quite grasp the gravity of the situation. And is what I noticed is that after we were at that facility, which was back in, I believe it was 2014, they did not have a deficiency in accidents and hazards or neglect of that significance from that time forward. And I actually looked at it this morning and they have had one deficiency 
on accidents or falls since then, and it was a very minor situation. So I think for a success story, I think that was a great one because we had a resident who had major outcomes over and over and over. And with one visit, we managed to fix something that was global for everybody else in that facility that lived there. Yeah, it's really encouraging to hear that a change was made and sustained in the facility. Mm -hmm. It was very good. So what challenges does your agency experience in serving clients who experience abuse, neglect, and exploitation? Maybe what are some of their characteristics that make it a little more challenging to serve them? Some of the challenges are that we don't have anybody to help them. And so they might be neglected, they might be abused, and they might be an individual that's confused or they have dementia or Alzheimer's and they don't understand that their decisions are not in their best interest. And we don't have anything to show that that person is incompetent legally to make their own decisions. And they put themselves in compromising situations over and over and over. And that is where it really is beneficial if APS can get involved because then they can come in and work with the county attorneys and they can get temporary guardianships for those individuals. But unfortunately, it's a process. It doesn't happen quickly. The resident ends up suffering in some capacity and there's just nobody out there that can really step in and just take hold of that situation and handle it all is one thing. I mean, you have all of these different entities that can be involved, but in that process of it, agencies like ours need to come together to help resolve the situation for those individuals that are abused or neglected or have their property stolen. I understand that as part of facility inspections, surveyors will interview residents, and you mentioned those who have some cognitive impairment. How do your surveyors go about incorporating the voice of facility residents who have difficulty remembering things or with communicating? Well, that's an easy question because every person, no matter what the level of cognition they have, they typically have that innate sense that they know what they like and don't like or what they agree or disagree with. Just as I will never like liver. And when I'm 90, I'm probably going to tell you I don't like liver. So regardless of whether that resident is cognitively able to respond appropriately or not, we attempt to do interviews with them and have conversations because they can tell us things, even when they have a very low cognitive level and they make poor decisions throughout the day or they cannot even ambulate on their own, things like that. And that communication that they not only show us physically, through their actions, through hand gestures, eye gestures, even the way they're breathing sometimes will communicate with you. Their eye movements, we can have them blink, you know, once or twice to respond to questions. And if they do that, we actually do accuracy tests to make sure that hopefully they're answering us correctly. But their voice is one of those things that I say constantly to the surveyors is, do you have that interview to go along with that? Like, what did that resident say about this situation? Because the resident's voice is the most important voice of everything I think that we do. And that is who we are there to protect, is that resident specifically. That's very interesting. 
Since you focus on affecting the LTC facilities through the mechanism of monetary fines and directed compliance, what else can service providers do if resources are available to work with you in assisting adults who experience abuse, neglect, and exploitation? So our goal is the same as what a facility's goals are, to provide good care. Or not provide, but make sure that resident has good care and hopefully excellent care if we can. And coming together, a provider and an agency such as ours, or even APS, is really beneficial and important because the work that we do together is going to be a much stronger and more positive outcome than if one agency was working independently in a very tough situation. So when we go into a facility, our goal Although we are required to identify deficient practices, which is not good news for a facility, our goal is to help the facility improve whatever process or whatever care is missing for that resident. And as a private provider back in the day when I was working in the facility, our goal was always good care. And when the surveyors would come into the facility, knowing that they had the ability to identify deficient practices that perhaps we were not catching, it was important because everybody has a different eye, a different ability to see things globally or individually. And so working together for the residents specifically is one of those things that if we can work in the future to come together like that and work as one versus having facilities doing all of this and our agencies doing all of this over here, it really is going to benefit the future totally for everybody in long-term care. And right now, CMS is really looking at the transparency of the work that we do, making sure that the facilities know what we do and why we do what we do. And that's really imperative for facilities to be aware of because nothing that we do is a secret. We should be able to tell them pretty much anything that we're doing. And that, I think, helps a facility feel more comfortable. And so continuing that process into the future will be a good thing. Along those lines, is there anything you would like to share with nursing home administrators or maybe other staff who are reluctant to reach out to your office with questions for fear of revealing a deficiency? I've worked in this profession or this agency for 14 years. And ever since I started, one of the things that I've always told the providers is that we will not come out and, you know, conduct a survey based on a question you ask us, either through the email or over the phone or whatever means. So we've kind of, as an agency, prided ourselves on, you know, backing that up and showing them that we can provide answers, we can provide guidance. And it doesn't mean that we come on site, you know, based on your potential deficiencies. So we've worked very hard to try to portray that image and open it up to all providers to ask us questions and to provide good answers to them once we do have those in front of us. So that's one of the things that I've strived as an individual. And I know many of our surveyors and folks like Tina and the other supervisors work very hard to present 
you know, any kind of guidance we can when it's appropriate. Often we can't do that when we're on site as a, conducting the survey. If we see something that is not in compliance, we have to cite it. So it's better for them to communicate with us when we're off site and we're not on survey and we can provide guidance and give them, you know, examples of things we have seen in the past. So I would agree with that. Working in a facility, I called the state all the time and there is no better resource if you don't know something about a regulation or something that you think you might need to do. Calling is really helpful because they're the ones who are going to be able to tell you. Granted, we have a lot of regulations that we uphold for long-term care. There's like 700 and some pages of them. And we might not know every single facet of everything in that regulation manual, but guaranteed we can find out. And our job is to interpret the regulations. And if a facility calls us, not only do we not have the time to go to their facility, but as I said earlier, our goal is to help them. And if we can help guide them to resources or provide not recommendations, but provide them guidance on someplace where maybe they could look or a best practice, something like that, that is really going to help them more than not calling and not contacting us. And I have facilities that call me very, very regularly. And that's where we have developed those relationships. And then a benefit of that is that sometimes something will come up later and I can go, oh, wait, I know about that because I've already been talking to the facility. I mean, this just happened the other day with the situation. So being together and working together, again, as I had said earlier, is very beneficial for all involved. And we do encourage constantly and some people will agree and some people do not agree, but we do really intend to try to help people as much as we possibly can in the building specifically. Yeah, I know oversight can be viewed as an asset or as a sort of an oppression. And it's really great to hear your philosophies and see how much you're striving to be an asset to the industry. Thank you both so much for taking the time to share with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it useful. This podcast was produced by Studio K Productions. Our podcast logo was designed by Among You One. We welcome your feedback. Please visit elderjustice.acl.gov to leave a comment at the bottom of the webpage's Contact Us section.